There's this idea that the government will wrap its arms around us, it'll mollycoddle us, it will stop misbehaving businesses from selling products that we want, uh, but which are bad for us, and it will allow us to blame them for the choices that we don't make. And of course, there's the appeal of banning stuff that you don't like. If you don't like to see morbidly obese people walking around the streets, then why not ban junk food? If you don't like to see people smoking, why not ban cigarettes? If you don't like loud music, why not insist that the government and councils ban that as well? It's very strongly rumoured that tomorrow Rishi will be announcing a ban on disposable vapes and incremental prohibition of cigarette sales. Apparently the age at which you can buy cigarettes is going to increase every year until nobody is old enough to buy cigarettes. Um, and uh, there's other nanny state issues afoot, not least in the area of gambling, which I imagine Philip will be uh, touching on. Let me introduce this fabulous panel. I have over here Emma McClarkin, who is the chief exec of the British Beer and Pub Association. We have Philip Davis, MP for Shipley. Annabel Denham, who is a deputy comment editor at The Telegraph. And Kuram Jawia, who is uh, from JTI, Japan Tobacco. So we've got various different um, targets of the nanny state, I think, uh, in front of us. If we could start off with opening remarks from Emma, please, that would be great. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, and you survived conference this far, so well done for being with us uh, this morning. Now, um, there are so many ways in which the state intervenes um, in our citizens' lives and in the way that we conduct our businesses, um, from regulations, obligations, um, banning, restricting, guiding, and all of these things make it harder to do business, make it harder for us to innovate, and it make it harder for consumers to get to the products that they want and they need. And the cost of doing business in this country is undisputably incredibly high. And if we want to encourage people to bring business here, do business in the UK, have an active market, it is extremely important that we are targeting the taxes that are crippling our businesses and this is way before you get to those that are very very specific to other sectors like my own um, that come under extra scrutiny be it in terms of beer duty that's added on top licensing restrictions marketing restrictions everything that makes it more difficult for us to do business in the beer in the pub sector and this is something that we need to take as a priority because post the pandemic we need to be productive we want to deliver growth and we need to be supportive of businesses that provide a service to their consumers. Now, our consumers are very, very specific. Um, I hope many of you are big fans of uh, the Great British Pub and, of course, our Great British Brewers. Um, we provide a very special place in communities up and down the country where they can come together. I very, very strongly believe we have a role in health and well-being. And people that come to the pub sometimes can only have the only conversation that they'll have that day. It staves off loneliness. It provides a warm place, particularly for the elderly, to come, to connect. And we know that it actually helps our health uh, and mental well-being, particularly. We've just written a report about the social value that we bring to our communities. And it is something that is very precious. We need to protect it. But these are narrow-margin profit businesses that are on the brink. And as we know through the pandemic, where we all lived under big restrictions, it was incredibly difficult for them to see a future. 
And so that sort of stands at risk. Now, when we come to our brewers, it's one of the highest tax sectors in the country, if not the most highest tax sector in the country. Uh, we pay 12 times more beer duty than they do in Germany and in Spain. And when you're looking at how we can support very positive moves that we also are doing in terms of developing the low and no product market, all the fantastic beers that are non-alcoholic out there, we need to be incentivized to be innovating, to providing for this. Um, and as a, a demographic and as a nation and the younger generation that's coming through, we are drinking less. It's a fact. And so we need to be able to be continue investing, innovating, providing these low and no products so we can encourage that drinking in moderation. And that's, of course, what you get in your local pub. You get the environment where you can drink in moderation, where we are legally obliged to be making sure that you are imbibing responsibly. And we take that incredibly um, seriously. But this is something that we need um, to help get the state out of the way so that we can develop, we can grow, we can keep providing and supporting our local communities. We've got over 936,000 jobs and there is so much that we could do, but we need to be knowing that we have a stable environment for our businesses to operate in. And with lots of uh, taxations always going up and rather than down, this is something that's going to make it incredibly difficult to make sure that we have sustainable growth for the future. And that is something that's really important to consumers, to voters, um, but it's really important to communities up and down this country. Thank you very much. Philip, can I turn to you? Yes, uh, and thank you for inviting me along. This, the nanny state debate, to me, is, epitomizes the difference between conservatism and socialism, or what conservatism should be and what socialism should be. It's about the fact that, as conservatives, we should believe that people make better decisions for themselves, their families and their communities than the state makes for them, and that we should allow people to make their own decisions and live their own lives without the state making all of those decisions uh, for them. Unfortunately, we appear to be losing that battle, uh, not just uh, in the country, but it seems at times also within the Conservative Party, to be perfectly honest. Um, and uh, I don't think I was elected to Parliament in order to ban everybody else from doing all the things that I don't happen to like personally. Uh, it seems most of my colleagues in Parliament think that they were elected to Parliament to do nothing else than to ban everybody else from doing all the things that they don't happen to like. And Look, we, we've, um, you know, when Chris mentioned some of the things the Prime Minister might announce in his speech tomorrow, which I, I, I sincerely hope he doesn't, um, but, you know, when, when we've got um, our own government who, you know, wants to tell retailers which shelves they can put certain products on or want to, to decide wh whether companies can offer special offers on products that the Department of Health consider to be unhealthy. You know, we, we know we're in a big problem when we've got a, a Conservative government doing those things. I mean, Lord knows what a Labour government would do um, if, if they got in. And, of course, we had the terrible issue over COVID, which was like the nanny state utopia for socialists, where literally the state decided it should run every aspect of everybody's lives, telling people whether they could go and visit their grandparents, how, grandchildren, how many people they were allowed to do anything within a group, what time the curfew should be. I mean, it was like an episode of The Prisoner, uh, to be perfectly honest, run riot. Um, and it seemed to my mind, when I was voted against all these uh, restrictions and lockdowns and all the rest of it, 
um, most of my constituents were emailing me to say how irresponsible I was being, not how, uh, thank you for defending our freedoms, but how irresponsible I was being to allowing so many people to die unnecessarily. So, you know, the, the, those of us who want to protect people's freedoms can only do so if the public want to be free, to be perfectly honest. We, we can't do it if they don't want to be free. They've got to stand up for themselves a bit in this debate uh, uh, too, and unfortunately they don't. And, and look, whenever anything happens, the first thing that the public often say is, what's the government going to do about it? Whenever anything happens in Parliament, the first thing an MP will say is, what's the government going to do about it? I mean, I long for the day when a minister will stand up at the dispatch box and say, well, we're doing absolutely nothing about it because it's nothing to do with us. It's for people to sort out for themselves. You know, I long for the day when a minister will stand up and say that, but no, you, they, never, they never do. They, they have to emphasise how all-powerful they are and how that they can control every aspect of everybody's lives. And, we, you know, we should worry about it. And, you know, the, the one I'm most worried about at the moment is in the field of gambling, as Chris uh, alluded to, where we've got the government and the gambling commission between them, in effect, saying that the state, the regulator, and the operators are going to decide for you how much you can afford to spend on your betting. And you're going to have no say in that decision whatsoever. They're going to say, actually, we've decided that this is how much you can afford to spend on betting, and if you don't like it, well, tough. Uh, you, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll stop you. How on earth can we get into a situation where we're not even allowed to decide how to spend our own money? Uh, but that's what we are sleepwalking into as a country, and everybody seems to be very relaxed about all these things, and people should be absolutely fuming about it, because it might start with gambling, and maybe people here, they may gamble, they may not, and think, well, I don't really care, I don't gamble. But once you've got that foothold into people's lives, where's that going to end? Whenever you want to buy, spend anything on anything, are the state going to say, well, you're going to have to tell us if you can afford it or not, and we're going to decide whether you can or can't? What kind of a country is that where we can't even decide how to spend our own money. Uh, Margaret Thatcher said in 1999, few things are more difficult than to inject a sense of personal responsibility in those peoples where the all-pervasive, all-providing, all-controlling state has all but obliterated such qualities. Uh, she said that in 1999. Lord knows what she'd think if she was alive today and what's, uh, what, what's going on. Uh, today, but you know we've 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 got uh, politicians who have handed powers over to unelected regulators. You know the gambling commission, for example, is in effect an anti-gambling campaign group masquerading as a regulator, uh, and we're just allowing them to do all of these things without any comeback at all, without any challenge even at all. We can't allow this to happen. We've got to stand up for our freedoms. We, everyone here, we've got to stand up for our freedoms. Don't leave it to somebody else. Don't say, oh, well, someone else will speak up for it. We've got to, do, we've got to actually get stuck in and get involved in ourselves because before you know it, all of the freedoms that you hold dear will have gone and it'll be too late to bring most of them back. So I, I'm really worried about the future of our country. Uh, I'm worried about the trajectory of all of these things. Um, and I think we should remember the words of uh, my good friend Jacob Rees-Mogg, who said, I'm all for nannies, but not the nanny state. Thank you very much. Go around, can I turn to you? Please? Sure thing. Uh, good morning, everyone. Before I go into more detail, I would like to start telling you a little bit about JTI and why this panel on consumer choice is so important to us. JTI is part of the Japan Tobacco Group of Companies, and we are a leading international tobacco and reduced risk products manufacturer. We have a long-standing presence in the UK, in fact, we are the number one tobacco manufacturer here, and we are the first manufacturer to offer three types of smoking alternative products to consumers in the UK, being our Logic Vapes, 
Heat Tobacco Products under our Plume brand, and Nordic Spirit, our Nicotine Pouch brand, which our chair is brandishing right there. <laughs> now, this panel on consumer choice is very close to the core values to JTI because we believe in freedom of choice. Our goal as a company is to continue to provide consumers with a wide range of quality products across the spectrum of combustible tobacco and those alternatives with the potential to reduce risk. Crucially, providing adult smokers with the information they need to allow them to make an informed choice about the products they choose to consume. It is not our role to dictate to adult smokers and force them to change their habits. But we do know adult smokers do vary in their needs and desires. Some enjoy smoking and don't wish to quit. Many are now making the choice to switch to those products with the potential to reduce harm, and there's others that smoke alongside vaping or using a nicotine pouch. Smoking rates have been in decline for years. Further tobacco control measures that have been floated by the government recently, like pack inserts, further restricting smoking outside bars, pubs and restaurants, or a generational ban on smoking like we've seen in New Zealand, try to force consumers into a decision, and that does not work. It's that simple. Surely it's time to move away from this nanny state approach and empower consumers with choice and more reduce harm products to choose from. Now the UK has taken a leading role in embracing the reduced risk potential of e-cigarettes and Public Health England's statement that vaping is 95% less harmful is, well, is known worldwide. However, vaping products are not the only products with the potential to reduce risk and not all smokers like vaping. As I mentioned, heat, tobacco products and nicotine pouches are available as a smoking alternative and need to be embraced to provide consumer with choice. But what evidence is there to support the reduced risk potential of these products? At present, it only exists within the industry. To strengthen the UK's standing on tobacco harm reduction, it is time for the UK government to focus its efforts on similarly supporting all potentially less harmful alternatives and champion their potential harm reduction benefits. This is a more positive approach than further nanny state tobacco control measures. However, there is some hesitation. The Minister for Health earlier last year in a response to a parliamentary question stated, there is no such thing as a safe tobacco product, and all tobacco is harmful. And today, the position has unfortunately remained the same. It is true, there is no such thing as a safe tobacco product, but there can be safer products. Just like vaping products are 95% less harmful, the element of harm is not eliminated, but reduced. Treating all tobacco products the same would be detrimental and prevent existing adult smokers from making an informed choice about considering switching to alternatives. The government needs to take action to acknowledge the potential and efficacy of less harmful alternatives by, for example, undertaking a review into heated tobacco and nicotine pouches and actively promoting their benefits to existing adult smokers in the same way they currently do for vaping, rather than focusing on further ineffective tobacco control measures. This would empower consumers to make their own choices about the products they seek to consume. Secondly, they should make clear to existing adult smokers looking for a potentially less harmful alternative through public information campaigns and education initiatives that all of these products are not the same as combustible tobacco products, do not carry the same level of risk. Thirdly, this must be underpinned by thoughtful regulation that instills consumer confidence in these products, does not conflate them with combustible tobacco. The UK government still has a unique opportunity to forge its own path and lead the way on tobacco harm reduction on a domestic and international level by acknowledging the potential of all smoking alternatives rather than continuously further regulate tobacco products and giving consumers choice. JTI believes that the UK can truly become an advocate and world leader in tobacco harm reduction by furthering an evidence-based and fair regulatory system that includes all smoking alternatives, not just e-cigarettes, but heated tobacco and nicotine pouches as well. Thank you. Thank you. And Annabelle, last but by no means least. Thanks, Chris. Um, so as a starting point, I wanted to think about what 
the allure is of nanny statism? Why is it that we find ourselves on this slippery slope and what keeps dragging us further and further down it? Um, you know, why is it that coercive measures, often coercive measures to control others' behaviour, is so appealing to groups like Action on Sugar, to politicians, to lobbyists, to bureaucrats, to quangos? You know, why is it that some people succumb to this seeming human instinct to believe that we do know what's best for others. Um, what drove J Douglas Jay in the Attlee government in 1937 to say that in the case of nutrition and health, the gentleman in Whitehall really does know better what is good for people than the people know themselves. Why do Tories whose predecessors never let Jay uh, live down this statement now seem to subscribe to it? And why does the general public generally go along with it? Well, there are obviously a multitude of reasons. I think personal experience obviously can play a role. Look at how many laws there now are which are named after people. I think snobbery is part of it, um, just as Jay showed. Uh, it's easy to cast judgment on the eating and drinking habits of other people in society, perhaps as a way of elevating our own status. And perhaps on an individual level, there's some comfort to be found in absolving yourself of responsibility, that there's this idea that the government will wrap its arms around us, it'll mollycoddle us, it will stop misbehaving businesses from selling products that we want, uh, but which are bad for us, and it will allow us to blame them for the choices that we don't make. And of course, there's the appeal of banning stuff that you don't like. If you don't like to see morbidly obese people walking around the streets, then why not ban junk food? If you don't like to see people smoking, why not ban cigarettes? If you don't like loud music, why not insist that the government and councils ban that as well? Um, when it comes to politician, politicians, I think that the nanny state, as with all laws and regulations, often allows them to be seen to be doing something, often without raising taxes. Um, and the appeal of this kind of thing has increased as budgetary constraints have become tighter with the explosion of benefits and pensions and NHS costs. And when they do raise taxes, they're able to cloak it in the language of public health, that excessive drinking and eating and smoking are bad for us. And of course, they're right, though you have to ask how many people in Britain today would dispute the idea that a diet of chips and beers is unhealthy or that smoking several packets of cigarettes a day is bad for us. And yet lots of people will still do it. And this is the wonderful complexity of the human condition. We do things that we know are wrong or risky. We make trade-offs. And that's ultimately, as Philip has underscored, a decision that we ought to be free to make. But nonetheless, we are in a situation where successive governments have given us bans, um, endless bans seemingly, and are planning many more. So you have the ban on so-called uh, junk food advertising before 9pm on TV or online at any time coming in uh, with a few exemptions. There's the planned ban on buy one, get one free on junk food. Uh, it's why calories are listed on menus. Um, this, this year's gambling white paper concluded 
that we need a state limit on online slots and a statutory levy on the gambling industry to fund research, education and treatment. There's the ban on fast food chains near schools, the planned ban on disposable vapes, uh, plain packaging on cigarette packets and so on and so forth. And I think that what this really illustrates is that uh, the nannies will never be satisfied. It doesn't matter if the sugar tax has been shown to be unsuccessful. Um, there'll just be calls for it to be raised uh, in response uh, or in fact further down the slippery slope there has been calls for a salt tax which is an ingredient without which um, we would die pretty quickly. Um, smoking weights are coming down um, and yet the government as Chris has mentioned is reportedly considering adopting New Zealand's gradual but total ban on smoking. I think another problem is that you know, very little of this is evidence-based. Um, it seems to be policy which is driven by instinct. Australia has banned vaping, but it still has high and rising levels of vaping and high and rising levels of smoking. Hungary has very strict anti-obesity measures, but since they've been introduced, in obesity hasn't falling, uh, fallen, um, you know, the evidence for banning internet advertising is very poor. In some cases, the evidence is so poor because actually the UK is going further than any other country has. And so therefore, we cannot look overseas to see what has and has not worked. But it's not just a case of this not working. It's also that it can be damaging. So when it comes to uh, taxes on some of these products, they're often regressive. They hit the poorest hardest. Um, Chris and I were talking earlier about formula uh, for babies, which you can't donate to food banks. They're not allowed to distribute it. Uh, it can't be advertised. Um, you have countless studies that seem to come out suggesting, uh, often uh, in thinly veiled terms, that breast is best. Well, I had twins who were born early um, with low blood sugar, and the advice given to me by pediatric consultants was that they should have formula so we would know exactly how much they were consuming, and it would mean that their hospital stay would be shorter. And if I were to listen to some of the strongest advocates for breastfeeding, I'd be made to feel like I'd failed in some way as a mother. Um, of course, another problem is that all regulation comes at a cost to businesses. So while it may not come um, at a cost to the public purse, um, it will come at a cost in the end to us all, um, either through lower wages for workers or higher prices for consumers. Um, Philip spoke about you know, you know, how uh, this is about conservatism, it's about freedom versus socialism. And if we at Conservative Party Conference can't all agree that people should be trusted with what they put in their bodies, um, then we're also potentially suggesting that people shouldn't be trusted to do anything. They shouldn't be trusted to manage their own money, run companies, and so on and so forth. And freedom from oppression, freedom for people to do what they choose is extremely important, even if it seems like the number of people willing to make the case for it is constantly shrinking. And we saw that during lockdown just how easily our independence can be seized, uh, seemingly for a good cause, and how difficult it can be to get it back. Um, but what I really think is necessary is that more people go out and make the case for personal autonomy and individual responsibility, not least businesses. Um, and they ought to bear in mind that the appeaser feeds the crocodile, hoping that it'll eat them last. 
And I think that if we're not careful, that crocodile will come after all businesses in some way or form in the end. Indeed. Thank you very much. Um, now, if you've got questions in mind, keep them in your mind for a little bit longer, because I've got a question for each panellist, just to try and dig into some of the details of, of some of the policies being bandied around and ask uh, a couple of other things. Emma, can I ask you, why is a pint of beer in a pub so expensive now? I mean, I know we've got inflation and so on. Someone was telling me there's a slug and lettuce around it selling pints at £6.50. These are London prices in Manchester. In, in London, it's someone paid... Someone who paid £13 for a pint in Canary Wharf the other day, but certainly £6 or £7 pounds is, quite, is quite common. Now, it can't just be taxes. What, what is going on? Um, well, we, as I said earlier, our beer tax is the second highest in Europe, only to Finland, and we pay 12 times what they do in Germany. If you think about our beer reputation that we have globally, everybody knows that we brew fantastic beer in the UK. They want to come, top three things to do in the UK is to go to a pub and have a pint uh, of beer and your fish and chips. And yet we don't support our British brewers with that lower rate of duty, which means that they can actually look at other opportunities for exporting uh, their beer around the world. But it is incredibly difficult. We're in a cost of living crisis and people want to be able to afford to go out and have the simple pleasures that they enjoy at the end of the week. A man wants to go out with £20 in his pocket and on a Friday night, or a woman, frankly, and know that they can have a good night. And the reality is, is that that is under pressure because of the cost of a pint of beer. Now, the uh, government and the Prime Minister did introduce a draft discount and that is a freeze on the cost but it was actually an overall increased taxation on duty because it's more expensive for consumers to buy in small pack that means if you buy in a bottle um, or a can at the supermarket or even in a pub it's more expensive than it is to have it from a draft um, so the reality is is that the principle was established we're going to support lower volume beer that is a good thing however it does mean overall that we're still paying more as brewers and that eventually that cost cannot be borne by us in our supply chains. The cost of everything in our supply chain went up as well with the war in Ukraine, not just on energy, on raw commodities. The raw materials that we actually make our product from, the pressure on barley prices went up by 50% and this all adds up to why we cannot make cuts. Uh, the reality is is a, um, one pound in every three um, it goes to the Treasury in a pub. And that's the reality of the situation. We need to see um, duty coming down to support our British brewers, to support our pubs. Um, seven out of ten of alcoholic drinks sold in a pub is a pint of beer. And everybody looks at that at the budget. So I really hope at this autumn statement, and if not at the autumn statement, at the budget, we'll see support coming forwards. People need to be able to afford to go out in the simple pleasures of life, stay connected as community, and bring it down duty is one of those that they can do. Thank you. Philip, um, I was at a gambling session with the Social Market Foundation yesterday. It was a rather, rather strong anti-gambling slant. In fact, somebody on the panel said that anybody who's received tickets to the races from the betting industry uh, should not only not be listened to, but shouldn't be allowed to talk about gambling. We do not have that rule here, otherwise that would knacker me and you. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that came up was, and maybe some other people, I don't know, but certainly me and you, um, one of the things that they're very keen on is these affordability checks, which I can see, I mean, the basic idea, in case you don't know, folks, is that if you spend a, or lose, as they would say, a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time, um, the gambling company will check up on you and make sure you can afford it. And I suppose, in principle, some people would think, well, that's a, a reasonable idea. It seems to me to fall down on the, on the practicalities. How actually can you have reasonably frictionless checks um, on, on, on people's spend? 
Well, well, you can't. I mean, look, I, I, if I knew every single bit about your income and outgoings, I still couldn't decide how much you can afford to spend on gambling. At the end of the day, that there has to be a level of personal responsibility and a personal decision-making. You know, we can't have a situation where either the government, the regulator or the industry literally decides for every one of 60 million people in the country, I'm going to decide for each one of those people how much they can afford to spend on gambling. I mean, it's, it's a nonsense. It's, an, I mean, it's, it's impossible to do. And, of course, the only way you can even make an attempt to do it is by very, uh, you know, detailed checks on people's income and, and their bank statements and their, uh, and their pay slips and their savings uh, books and all sorts of things. I mean... Who on earth is, wants to hand over all of that information to either a bookmaker or a regulator? I certainly don't, in terms of mind their own business, to be perfectly honest. Um, and so, you know, and, and the, the levels at which they're wanting to do these checks are, are ridiculously low. I mean, at the highest level, the highest level of, of a check is, I think you, you lose £2,000 over 90 days, you'd have to have a, a check. That's the highest. I mean, some of the checks are, 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 are lower than that. Well, I mean, we've got, we've got a situation in... I mean, I'm a big horse racing fan. We've got a situation where we've got owners like Ollie Harris. Ollie Harris probably spends about a million pounds a year buying horses, uh, none of which is subject to an affordability check, I might add. He then spends about a quarter of a million pounds a year on training fees, none of which are sub sub subject to an affordability check. And yet, if he spends £2,000 betting on those horses over 90 days, he's going to have to provide some information to prove he can afford to do it. I mean, what on earth is all that about? I mean, it's an absolute nonsense, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's, I just don't even understand how anybody with a half a brain can even think that this is a good idea. Um, but here we are. We're not just, somebody's not just proposing it. This is, what's, this is happening. Um, and if you, can't, if you can't show that you can afford this to the satisfaction of the, your bookmaker and or the regulator, then I'm afraid you're going to be stopped from betting. Uh, it might be giving you a huge amount of pleasure. You might be a professional punter, but you just have a little bit of a bad run. And uh, you lose £2,000 over 90 days. Everyone who's serious about their betting knows that you have good runs and bad runs. You have a bad run. Um, you, haven't, you haven't got a steady job. You haven't got a pay slip or anything to justify it. So you're going to be stopped. You're going to be stopped from earning your living because the, some idiot regulator in the government have decided that, oh, well, we don't, we, we don't think that, you know, we're not sure you can afford this. I mean, God help us. Literally, God help us. I mean, if, I suspect if it, if it ever went on to you know, buying shoes or something, you know, Esther, my wife, she'd be up in arms about it, I think, at that point, about whether she could afford to buy a pair of shoes or a new coat or whatever, you know. But this is, this is what's coming down the line. If it, if it, it starts with gambling, but where does it end? Um, and it, the logical conclusion to this is that whenever you go and buy anything, somebody somewhere is going to check, can you afford to do this? This will be the, the FCA will be all over this like a rash. They'll love all this, won't they? So, um, you know, I, I just don't... I, it, it doesn't work in practice... And in principle, it absolutely stinks. It stinks to high heaven, to be perfectly honest. And everybody, but everybody, should be trying to stop the government and the regulator introducing affordability checks and saying, look, I should actually have some say over how I spend my money. I mean, is that, is that such an unreasonable thing? That you should have some. So this, you're not borrowing money to do this, by the way. This isn't, you know, you're not taking out a mortgage here, or you're not taking out a loan for a car, or something like that. This is your money. You've you've earned it. You've paid tax, and it's now yours, or you'd like to think it was. 
And even that isn't good enough for most people now. Uh, they want to tell you how you can spend your hard-earned money. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's absolutely chilling. Thank you. Uh, Kurum, so Philip says, where does it end? Apparently it ends with say, total yes. prohibition yeah, uh, yeah. in some wacky New Zealand incremental way. So the policy in this instance is, and this is, hasn't even been implemented in New Zealand yet, but the idea is that the age at which you can buy cigarettes goes up every year. So if you're born... Uh, before or after 2005 or something like this, um, you can never quite catch up. You'll never be able to buy cigarettes. So initially, picture this group of first-year students. Some of them are 19. They can buy cigarettes. The 18-year-olds can't. And skip forward a few years, the 26-year-olds can buy cigarettes. The 25-year-olds can't. I, I don't think this is going to work somehow. <laughs> can you see any flaws in this? Uh, yeah, some. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all quite quick to, you know, the New Zealand model, but when South Africa, during COVID, they did ban sales of cigarettes. Mm. And what happened? 95% were just bought illicit. Now, right now in this country, one in three smokers buy illicit tobacco, just because of, for a number of reasons anyway. That's cost the government nearly 51 billion since the turn of the century. So it's a lot of revenue. This is it's unpractical, as you said, with the sort of the age as well, in terms of the age checks that are gonna be required for retailers to do and be very good at mathematics, better than me for sure, to work out the ages of people. Mm. Um, and this is just a departure in smoke going smoke-free as well. Smoke-free was meant to be 5% or less smoking prevalence, and this is an outright ban. Um, it's illogical. It, it's hard to imagine how this will be administered and how it will be enforced, because this is just going to increase a really big illegal trade market. Yeah, I mean, you, I think most people would agree it's unethical to buy cigarettes for like an 11-year-old, but buying one for a you know, pack of cigarettes for a 28-year-old, I think most people would think, well, yeah, maybe this is technically illegal, but I don't really have a moral uh, problem with it. Annabelle, um, this policy was initially leaked to The Guardian, interestingly, on a Friday. I, I assume The Guardian was being mischievous. There were no direct quotes from it. I thought somebody's flying a very strange kite here. Um, Philip says, you know, imagine how much things, how much worse things would be if, if Labour were in charge. But actually, when you look back on Labour's record, yeah, we had the smoking ban, some little restrictions around junk food advertising to children on TV. But it's been under the Tories that this has really taken off. Under every Prime Minister as well, Bartlett's trust. I mean, even Boris Johnson, supposed libertarian, suddenly came up with all this world-leading um, anti-food stuff. What, I mean, if Rishi does announce, you know, if it's not just a rumour, and actually it is now a thing that the Conservatives are going to totally prohibit um, cigarettes within the next 90 years. Um, it, what is the point of the Conservatives? I think it might be better to, best directed at uh, Philip. What's the point of the Conservative? But no, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the examples that I gave to you earlier have, uh, uh, of restrictions that have been brought in under successive Conservative governments since 2010. You're right to mention Boris Johnson, who was a self-professed libertarian until he caught COVID and then had this Damazine conversion and started to try and roll out a raft of um, nanny state anti-obesity measures um, based on very little of any evidence um, at all. I think you know, the problem at the moment the Conservative Party seems to have is that it's divided between those who are one nation Conservatives and those who are more on the trust site wing who believe staunchly in individual responsibility and freedom and independence. Um, and it's very difficult to see how those two groups are going to come back together. And I think when you come into election season, the temptation to bring in feel-good policies... Mm -hmm 
um, you know, such as, I mean, even a ban on smoking. I think if you went out and polled people in the street, they'd broadly be in favour of this. Smoking is bad for you. Ergo, the government ought to ban it without considering necessarily that it would lead to a massive black market in cigarettes and that prohibition um, never works. Um, and so I think there's, if anything, we're going to see more of these policies as we come up to um, the next general election, because unfortunately, it's very easy to do. Look at how many statutory instruments are brought in every year. Look at how politicians seem to find success by the number of laws and regulations that they're able to bring in. The temptation to always be seen to be doing something, and like I mentioned briefly earlier, um, the benefits of these sorts of measures are often obvious, but the costs are largely hidden. So just to divert slightly away from nanny statism and towards employment regulation, well, there was an IEA book that came out in around 2017 that suggested that the cost of uh, labour market regulation to businesses was around £15 billion a year, and the number of people who have um, things like HR um, and industrial relations in their job title was well into the hundreds of thousands. And you know, all of this is driving up costs for businesses, which are going to be passed on in some ways because we know that regulations or the cost of regulations and taxes are not borne by companies themselves, which are just structures. They're just they're faced by workers who are going to have lower pay or they're faced by consumers who are going to find that products are more expensive on the shelves. But these things take a while to trickle through. And so in the sh very, very short term, the temptation is for politicians to bring them in and try and get some votes that way. OK, I'll go to questions in one second. I should first just give Philip a, a chance to defend his party, which I'm sure he's keen to do. Well, I don't agree with Annabelle that there's, a, there's two choices in the Conservative Party. That's being a one-nation Tory or a Trussite. Uh, I don't consider myself to be either, Annabelle, to be perfectly there's honest. A third so, way, there's a third way. Exactly, there must, be, there must be a third way. Look, I think uh, people, you use Tony Blair. I mean, Tony Blair introduced the Gambling Act in 2005, which was very, very liberal. Uh, um, I don't think I would sort of have Tony Blair as a typical uh, socialist, uh, to be perfectly honest. I don't think he necessarily represents what the Labour Party is like in Parliament today. I mean, it offer, I mean in many respects, um, if I, I've said in the House of Commons tea room a few times that the most Conservative Prime Minister that I've been in Parliament for is Tony Blair. So um, I, I'm not sure I would use him as, a, as, as, the, as the gold standard for socialism. Uh, I th I've... Well, everything's relative, and I think if anybody thinks that the, the Labour government would not be worse than the con this Conservative government on nanny statism is in for a massive shock, uh, potentially, after the next election. And I suspect um, if you were to speak to anybody uh, in the uh, gambling industry or the gambling sector or people who enjoy a bet or whatever and say to them, you know, do you want all of these uh, rules around, um, uh, around gambling to be decided by this government or a future Labour government? I'm pretty sure they would all say, I'd sooner this government decide them than the next Labour government. So uh, everything, is, everything is relative. And look, we, we know what, the, what socialists want to do. Uh, the only hope for the public is with a Conservative government. It might not be perfect. Uh, it very often isn't, um, and I, I often vote against it myself. But, um, but look, it's certainly better than the alternative, and the only hope for ever getting uh, the types of things that I believe in introduced in this country is through a Conservative government. It's not going to happen through any other alternative government. 
There we go. Better the devil you know. Potentially good slogan for the next uh, general election. <laughs> right, who's got a we're, question? We're, we're trapper, they're trapper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you could... Uh, well, go here, because we've got a microphone there. If you could just give, give us your name, we ask a question. Um, yeah, it's on, yeah. yeah. Um, Victoria Morgan from the British Horse Racing Authority. Um, so I've got a question for Philip um, around the gambling. Do you think that the argument's kind of been lost within the Conservative Party around sort of what's been proposed for gambling? And do you think there's any way that the government might sort of reverse ferret on some of their um, proposals? Look, the, th the thing is with politicians, you've got to always remember, politicians don't make logical decisions or ideological decisions. They make political decisions. And um, the thing is, is that w w when you ask a politician to do something, vote for something, speak up for something or whatever, the first question the politician says, well, what's in it for me? Well, you know, wh why should I do this? And, you know, to be perfectly honest, if you were to say to most politicians, um, you know, do you think that you're going to get a net benefit or a net loss out of speaking up in favour of gambling? Most of them will say, actually, do you know what? I think I've seen I've seen all those custard pies that get thrown at Philip Davies. I don't think I'm going to I don't think I'm going to go there. I'm just going to sit it out. So they, they, they take the path of least resistance because they don't really see that it's going to do them any favours by saying something unpopular um, or what they perceive to be unpopular. So that's that's the uh, so you've got to try and you've got to try and. Um, redesign the argument to a certain extent. People are much more likely to speak up for horse racing than they are for gambling. I think that's certainly true. And I think the, you know, the horse racing industry needs to be much more vocal about how damaging this is going to be for the racing industry. If the, you know, ultimately, you know, the, the gambling industry hands over about £350 million a year to the racing industry in one form or another. Prize money, I think, in the in the UK is about 200 million or 200 odd million. So bookmakers are, and punters are handing over far more than total prize money levels in the UK. So I think the racing industry needs to sort of um, to get behind the punters a bit more. Um, and the industry itself needs to be a bit braver in sticking up for its punters, its customers at the end of the day. They need to, they need to be the speak up for their customers. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that the racing industry is bold enough to speak up for gambling. It always seems slightly, you know, ashamed of the fact that all of our money comes from gambling and all, you know, all the rest of it. Uh, it should be a bit more proud of the fact that, you know, horse racing isn't much of a sport without betting, frankly. Uh, if people didn't have a bet on anything, nobody would really be watching it, would they? That's what, that's what makes horse racing, people having a bet. And horse racing should be a bit prouder of that. And the industry needs to be a bit bolder at speaking up for its customers uh, and not be cowed, as it often is, by the regulator thinking if we speak up about you know these things, if we speak up for the punter, the gambling commission is going to come and double our fine next time. So we'll, we'll, we, I don't think we'll bother. But at the end of the day, if you just sit back and accept these things, it's going to happen. There's only one way of, of trying to stop it, and that's by fighting back and making life as uncomfortable for the regulator and the government to do these things. Whilst everyone just sits back and rolls over, the government and the regulator will keep coming back and doing it because it's easy for them. Make it harder for them. Make it uncomfortable for them. Go and have a debate on the Today programme with them. Even better, do it on GB News. But have a debate with them and make life uncomfortable. Um, and that's the only way, ultimately, to stop them when you, when you make it as difficult as possible for them. Thank you. Uh, lady down here, please. Just be, before I come to you, 
Am I right in thinking that the Gambling Commission keeps the money you get from fines? That it supplements its income with... Well, it, 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 hands, it hands out the money to in sort of research, education and treatment program. It gets mm. these money in huge fines and then it hands out the money in, in, in these things. Uh, somebody ought to do ask a question. I, I may do it when Parliament resumes because the chief executive of the Gambling Commission came from Swansea University. Obviously, he knows a lot about gambling uh, and the DVLA. I mean, he was well qualified. He knows absolutely sod all about gambling. That's basically his qualification for running the Gambling Commission. And I'm going to ask how much of this money that gets levied in fines has ended up back at Swansea University, because I suspect quite a lot of it has. Uh, and, uh, and that's another way of making life uncomfortable for the Chief Executive of the Gambling Commission when you start rumbling what is going on. Madam. Christine Smith from Yorkshire Delegate. I attended the gambling meeting yesterday and I lost the will to live. <laughs> a less humorless panel you could never, ever hope to meet. And the Conservative MP, Richard Graham, said, I'm not against gambling, but... And I realised then he came from Gloucester and probably never knew what... So I asked one or two people, have you ever, have you ever betted? Oh, no, certainly not. And I don't think there was more than three people in that room that ever knew anything about it. I've always, you know, Cheltenham, National, Derby, whatever. But I am surprised, and I've mentioned this to Philip before, that Corals... Betfred and Ladbrokes, who have got immense power, really, have not said to this lot, start off. Why are they not doing it? Because they're very, very quiet. Who appoints these people, these regulators, these, you know, that know absolutely nothing about racing? Well, the government appoint the regulator. That's uh, that, that's, that's that. Uh, yeah, well, indeed, Christine, that would be a cracking idea. Look, I think the, the, the reason why the industry doesn't speak up is because they fear the consequences from the regulator and they fear huge fines and, and, and not without justification. But I think at some point, unless they want to just preside over a gradual death, they're going to have to speak up a bit more. And, and actually, it's not about speaking up for them. It's about speaking up for their customers. It's about speaking up for their punters who want to have a bet and like having a bet. And my biggest criticism of the gambling industry, and I have many, but my biggest criticism is that I don't think they are sufficiently speak. They don't sufficiently speak up for their punters. They 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 speak up too much for self-interest and not enough for their customers. Okay, we've got two here. Have we? Oh, you, you first, sir. Yeah. And then one in front. It's um, Alec Mitchell from Watford. Just a quick um, point to Philip. I had the same word in my MP yesterday. I'd rather vote for something I believe in rather than voting for something because it's not as bad as the other lot. So let's be more positive on that front. But my question is this. Um, you know, this nanny state is one thing, but I'm worried about a dystopian future with central digital currency coming down the road and a, and a database of everything we own there. Once, they, once the government has this, whichever government it is, it can actually stop things digitally. So how do we fight back against this? Anyone have a view on this one? I'll deal with the first bit, can I say. Ele uh, elections are about choices at the end of the day, right? And very, I mean, I couldn't handpick somebody and agree with them about everything, right? I mean, it's just, not, it's just not possible. So at the end of the day, any election is about a choice. It's about who would I prefer? Might not, they might not be perfect, but who would I prefer to be there? And, and ultimately, that's what elections have always been about, and that's what elections will always be about, to be perfectly honest. And it's, it's a grubby business. Who's got the microphone? That's good. Morning, it's Gavin Hamilton from South Shropshire. Um, all this, the freedom of choice and what you do with yourself is obviously extremely important and the main point of this meeting. 
but where, where does one draw the line in terms of antisocial behaviour? And then maybe going towards um, uh, protection of children, because you yourself said you wouldn't give a cigarette to an 11 year old. And, um, and that maybe is going more towards the vapes question, because um, I think a lot of the reason why vapes are sort of being attacked is because of the um, essentially the antisocial aspect of it, which makes it possible, uh, popular to control it. And not so much what it actually does to the individual who's taking them. And that seems to be the, the sort of gray area in between where something maybe needs to be done, but um, maybe the companies or individuals do need to take responsibility. But unfortunately, they don't always do so. Yeah, so there's issues with disposable weights around littering um, and also, obviously, un underage use. I don't know, Emma, if you wanted to speak about the public disorder issue with the nighttime economy. But oh, you want to go first, um, in terms of the youth sort of vaping, it is an issue, um, but we shouldn't all be penalised for it. It's an enforcement issue. Um, people need to enforce what's already there. There's a lot of non-compliant products already on the market that need to be taken off the market. Retailer, rogue retailers shouldn't sell to minors. So, no, uh, we've obviously um, been uh, in the frame for sometimes for what are you doing about antisocial behaviour, but actually if we keep people in venue, imbibing, in our pub environment for longer, then the antisocial behaviour on the street is reduced. If you make the cost of a pint of beer, for example, incredibly expensive and much cheaper at the supermarket, they're going to go and buy it at the supermarket, they'll be on the street. So there is a way that we can work to help nudge the consumer to have the right behavioural um, patterns but it's a nudging rather than using legislation as a sledgehammer to crack a nut when you look at the problem that you're trying to solve think holistically about that problem think about the sensible way that you can use collaboration and work in partnership with industry to deliver a solution for the smaller percentage if it was any type of addiction we take that incredibly seriously with gambling smoking alcohol we all do but it is a smaller problem drinking is a very tiny percentage but if you come up with population-wide solutions for this on any of these matters you're coming up with something that makes everybody the majority pay for it and suffer and the rea reality is is that the majority drink in moderation and enjoy themselves and hopefully, mainly within a pub environment, supporting their industry, and it becomes circular. But the reality is, is that we're using these population-wide policies that don't work. They did it in Scotland on the minimum unit pricing. Alcohol deaths went up. People figured out that they could buy higher volume products at a better price. It was cost efficient for them. Beer became more expensive. They went for higher volume products. Alcohol deaths went up. Scotland's response is to increase and keep increasing the price of alcohol when it has not been proven to be the right solution for that problem, which is 1.4% of the population they're trying to impact. And that's 1.4% of the drinking population. So we need to have some perspective. Where do we need to educate and nudge in partnership with the industry in the right direction for responsibility versus legislation and taxation that actually stifles the real ways that we can solve these problems. Can I just say, I, I know that I, lots of my constituents complain about disposable vapes in the local environment and whatever, but, but how can it be a logical conclusion to say we're going to ban disposable vapes because they're littering the place? Like saying, I see lots of McDonald's wrappers all over, so let's ban McDonald's, or I see supermarket trolleys here, there and everywhere, so let's ban Asda and Tesco and what. I mean, I just don't understand the logical conclusion. If there's a problem with littering, let's deal with littering and let's deal with the litterers. Surely you don't deal with the product that they're littering. I mean, how, I, mean I just don't, I, I don't see for the life of me how that is a logical 
solution to the problem, but maybe yeah, I'm... Well, no, yeah, but as Trim says, we have the laws already in place. We're not, we're not enforcing them. Animal? Yes, I was just going to come back on the central bank digital currencies concern, which I share, but unfortunately have quite a defeatist view on, <laughs> which is that they're an inevitability. It's a terrifying prospect, given that the Bank of England has proven itself to be completely incompetent over the last few years, and the challenge will be to ensure that it isn't, to my mind at least, abused. Um, I suspect that in time we'll get to a point where welfare benefits are issued through some kind of central bank digital currency and the temptation for policymakers will be to limit and control how that welfare is spent and that's that's exactly the kind of thing that we ought to be prepared for um, and armed with the arguments to push back against and when it comes to antisocial behavior just to reiterate what other panelists have said which is it's a question of enforcement of ensuring that retailers are not dishing out um, disposable vapes or vapes to people who are underage. It's about uh, ensuring that the laws we already have are being adhered to rather than there being quite an obvious failure of policing and the response to that just being to introduce more laws, more regulations, which are going to affect in some way the majority just because we can't, you know, the minority are not throwing things away as they ought to. Has anyone got the microphone? Would anyone like the microphone? You've got it. Yes. No. If it's on? Yes, yes. it is. David Gray, I'm from uh, Gloucestershire. Uh, I live in a, a small, very small town in a rural county. And it can feel like w rural communities are under attack because, you know, we've, we've banned hunting. We've, we're about to ban wood dried wood burners, even after we ban, you know, kiln-dried wood burners. Uh, we're crushing our rural pubs, which have been the centre of our communities, which effectively is banning socialising. Why don't we start banning a few urban things, like uh, banning new legislation, banning immigration lawyers, or banning socialism, for example? And so the real, the real, my real point here is goes to what Philip said about the dangers where you get a majority of people imposing restrictions on minorities and personally I think you should need a super majority of 90% or something to ban anyone to make it illegal for people to impose restrictions on other people's behavior you know because otherwise this is this is and I think several people have mentioned it it's a very very slippy slope that we're on here because 55% of people can impose restrictions on 45% of people and that is not where we need to go as a, a civilization. The, the tyranny of the majority, only about 13% of the population smoke now. The very clever thing about the New Zealand approach is the smokers that it's going to be affecting, some of them haven't even been born yet. You know, I mean, all their children, they don't have any, they don't have any vote at all. Um, any, any comment on that? Should we go to another one? Michael Bracken from Beaconsfield. Uh, Chris, you came up with the term apprentice adulthood and uh, some of the proposals around gambling. I mean, do you think this is seriously in prospect that we're going to be treating different groups of adults differently mm. if they're a bit younger? Well, there is a, this 
growing idea about the brain not fully developing until you're 25. And now you're getting these, in my opinion, quite shocking stories from Scotland, where this is now part of the judicial system. And you're getting people who have committed quite horrendous crimes getting off with a relative slap of the wrist because they're under the age of 25. Well, a huge number of criminals are under the age of 25. There's a prime, prime age for being a criminal. Maybe that's because their brains haven't been fully formed, um, quite possibly. But does that mean they should be getting half the sentences as, as everybody else? Um, so, yeah, there is this idea um, that actually adulthood should be stretched out a, a little bit more in the case of this smoking thing by every year uh, indefinitely. But at the same time, you've got various politicians want to have votes at 16. Mm. Usually um, the same ones. Who, Usually yeah, the same politicians. Uh, politicians sometimes who would benefit from having voters whose brains are not fully formed. <laughs> um, <laughs> down here. <laughs> Hello, I'm Oliver Cox, Whitney uh, West, West Oxfordshire. Um, my, my question to the panel is this. Undoubtedly, since the COVID lockdowns, there's now inspiration across local governments, regulators. Oh, what can we ban now? How can we make this ramp it up? And undoubtedly, we seem to be on a defeatist path towards a nanny state. So what more do we need to do? Is it go after the regulators to make sure that we're not having a left-wing ideology saying you can't bet more than £20 on Tottenham Hotspur winning the title or what's, or um, regulators going, oh, we'll have less, on, less sugar on dairy milk products or you can't drive up a street. So is this we need to rein in the government power over this and maybe need Parliament to take control on that as a consensus or is this more about we need to rein in the regulators to put a stop to this and allow consumer-free choice. Thank you. If you're going to bet on Spurs winning the title, perhaps the government should step in. <laughs> yourself, yourself. But, um, anybody got a comment on that? I mean, I think there has been a hangover from, from COVID. There's definitely, you know, there was, um, and, and not just in the UK, if you look around the world, everybody in every sort of government is, has had their hands on control of things and they're lifting it off quite slowly. And what we need is a Conservative government to be conservative. We need them to bring that common sense approach. We need them to support a business. This business needs to recover our economy. We won't be able to do anything to help anybody if we do not have a strong economy. And so that's what we need them to do. We need them to relent the hands and take them back off, allow us to recover our economy, look at where the problems really lie, because there are really big problems post-COVID, and we need to focus on those ones, but not these big ones that appear to be vote winners that actually are just press releases that cost us money. They cost us money as consumers, they cost us a lot of money as businesses, and will leave us poor as a country, and I genuinely believe that. So, can you be more conservative, please? Well, look, I, I, wish, we, I wish we would. Um... I think we've got to get angry about these things and rather than just accepting it, to be perfectly honest, I mean, that's the problem is we've just become accepting of these things and as if that's just the way it is and we've not got to accept that that's the way it is. And I mean, the, the COVID thing was the most chilling for me. It was really chilling how people would in effect hand over their, their freedoms without, without even a whimper. To be I found that particularly chilling. What I find equally chilling is I reckon if the same thing happened again, the, the next government would come along, and I reckon they'd do exactly the same thing, and I suspect the government would be the public would be equally accepting of it. That's the this is the worrying thing to me, and that you know people have got to be get angry about this and not be accepting of it. Um, but I think we're a million miles away from that, and uh, I mean I, Emma's Emma's right. Politicians do it because they think it's popular, and actually. Maybe it is. So um, at the end of the day, the public have got to stick up for themselves here and say, look, this isn't popular. <laughs> we don't want you to do these things. We want to run our own lives. Um, and, you know, if the, if the public make that sound noisily enough, 
politicians will will respond. But um, at, the, at the moment, the people who tend to be the loudest are the people who want to ban everything. And the silent majority, as usual, stay silent. Well, the, the, the solution to this, the, all of these problems is for the silent majority to stop being silent. I'll just take one more question over here. I think, have you got one? No, we can take two. Can we, this gentleman and this gentleman, yeah. and then we'll try and wrap things up, and you can answer whatever you like. All right, uh, David Sayre from the Portman Group, which is the alcohol marketing regulator and social responsibility body. And I wanted to ask a question about maybe meeting the middle here about empowering industry best practice, because the industry takes its responsibilities to marketing very seriously, protecting children, protecting vulnerable consumers. We have a code of practice on marketing, code of practice on sponsorship, which the government has actually highlighted in the gambling white paper as something that gambling could go ahead with. So is there more of a, the answer here in terms of their protection serious, but is there more we can do to be elevating and highlighting industry best practice here? Thank you. And final one, stand here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Chris Stewart from York. Um, I suppose it's a, it's a quick question following up Philip's point about how do we wake up the silent majority? Because I think it is still a majority that are on our side. And you've talked about gambling. One example I'd use, I work in financial services and regulation is so, so vast. So you can, for example, get, donate £2,000 to bookmakers or spend or, or whatever it may be. You can't buy an investment trust that's been running for maybe 150 years until you've been sent a key investor document. Even after that point, you can't buy a lot of them unless you've been satisfied as a complex investor. Even after that point, you can't buy a lot of them unless you're a professional investor. You know, and that's regulation that is effortlessly throughout the industry. And it's, it's something that, you know, from our client's point of view, nobody has ever come to us and said, well, we think it's a good thing. But it, it's just effortlessly there. And of course, in financial services, what does compliance and regulation do? It makes everything far, far more expensive. So it's how can we wake up that silent majority? Okay, we're just running over time very slightly. So if, we could have, if you've got anything to say about either of those questions or anything else... Um, please. Just, just on that, look, I think some of the problem is big companies. Big companies are, are often the problem here as well because they, like, they love regulators. Meat and drink to them. I mean, when I worked for, for Asda, you know, we, we had, you know, dozens of people dealing with, you know, health and safety and all this kind of thing. And it's a barrier to entry for other people, isn't it? If you can have, you know, lots of regulation, then it's, that's, that suits big companies because no one else can enter the market. So I think that uh, there's a, the, you know, sometimes big companies are the ones, I, I often go and, to meetings and they go, oh, we, we, we like regulation, we, we want regulation. And I think, well, you know, why? But I think that is why they like it, because it stifles the competition. And, um, and so I think big companies are sometimes as much to blame as anybody about all of this. Oh, can I just come in on this point as well? Is that, um, uh, as, as Philip has said, about the bigger companies, the impact on small businesses, but decisions that are made on problems in city centres will have an, um, a repercussion in rural community that will be far greater by the time it's rippled that effect out. Um, and so we need to think about the real impact of legislation, of proposals, of policies that are coming through, and yes, of taxations, to understand the full impact. You know, a bigger company, as Philip said, might be able to overcome those, absorb those, find other ways to offset it. A small business in a rural community may not. And we have to understand that when we're introducing these policies, all these taxes, the impact that it's going to have, and accept that sacrifice, if that's what you're doing, and make that public. But without that consideration, um, you know, industries like mine will suffer. Annabelle, I'll give you the final word. 
Thank you. Um, I would just say, Philip, unfortunately, I'm not sure it's enough to say that, um, you know, we mustn't let the silent minority get their way and that, uh, sorry, the vocal minority get their way and the silent majority uh, simply don't stand up for themselves because we see it absolutely everywhere. Look at HS2, for example. Look at the way in which NIMBYs who are highly motivated and uh, they mobilise and they stop homes from being built in their areas and that's why we have a chronic housing shortage. If you look at most of the problems in in our economy and our society, they boil down to the, the fact that a small minority are able to put their interests forward and politicians, for one reason or another, really struggle to uh, resist it. So I think we need more politicians like Philip uh, who are willing to stand up for in individualism and freedom um, and rail against uh, the nanny state. And if we don't get that, then unfortunately things are just going to get worse. Thank you very much. It's raining yet again. Good luck outside. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much to the panel.